Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today on The Argument, what does it mean to be Asian American? If you walked up to somebody on the street and you said, what is an Asian American? I was standing there, they would point to me, you know, or if I was standing there with some of my friends who are South Asian, I'd say, which one of us is Asian? I bet 90% of them would, would point to me right now. That doesn't mean that that's right or wrong. It's just to prove that the, the label is just so amorphous and, and so contextualized and that, you know, it, it ultimately ends up being almost meaningless after a while. This is Jay Caspian King. You might know him for his work in the New York Times Magazine or his excellent Times Opinion newsletter. He writes about a wide range of topics, education, city policy, gambling, affirmative action. But one thing he's been focused on for the last decade is his own identity. Specifically, what it means to be Asian American. I say that with air quotes, because to Jay, that identity is mostly meaningless. Like, who falls under that banner and who doesn't? Is it too broad a label trying to fit too many people underneath? He's written a whole book about how he feels about the term. It's called The Loneliest Americans. And since its publication, it's definitely pissed some people off. Which, by the way, Jay's never been afraid to do. Jay's argument is that the term Asian Americans is wielded by mostly upwardly mobile East Asians. And they use it to concentrate on their problems, which are very different from those of poor, working class, or undocumented Asians. It's also a term that, he says, doesn't really make sense. What exactly do people who emigrated from India 30 years ago and people who were the descendants of Chinese miners in 1880 San Francisco have in common anyway? Personally, I've been thinking about this idea a lot recently. When people use the term black community, my first thought is, that makes it sound like we have meetings, and I hate meetings. And don't get me started on leaders in the black community. Did we take a vote? Jay and I are joined by one of his podcast co-hosts, Tammy Kim. Their podcast, Time to Say Goodbye, talks about politics in Asia and Asian America. Tammy does see value in the Asian American identity, and she's not afraid to disagree with Jay. I started out asking Jay to tell me more about why he thinks the term Asian American is pretty useless. Yeah, um, I think it's particularly intense within the Asian American community because there are just people from so many different countries and so many different backgrounds who speak different languages. And many of those people don't speak English, right? So there's almost no common language. And that they do come from a variety of different class backgrounds and they vote differently, right? So if you look at the Vietnamese population in Orange County in California, and and then you take, I don't know, like a Indian American enclave that might be like, you know, 30 miles up the road, right? Like the ways they vote in the elections is completely different, right? Like the Vietnamese American population, I think, is at this point almost majority voting Republican and certainly voted for Trump in large numbers. And the Indian American community uh, votes mostly for Democratic candidates. I think it's something that cha- the term changes so much, right? And and depending on how you, how you define it, it can change by like a billion people. And so I, I think that like the sort of fluctuations in the terms, right, um, make it almost impossible for anyone to figure out you know, like, what does this mean? And then to try and build politics out of that. Like, I, I think that's, that's almost impossible. 
Tammy, what's your relationship to the term? Yeah, I think my experience with it is fairly different from Jay's. I grew up sort of adjacent to a Korean enclave that was very working class. And I was politicized as a young adult through Asian American spaces that had class politics. So for me, my encounters with Asian America perhaps incorporated some of the mythology that Jay is criticizing in his book, but at the same time, use that as a kind of organizing principle to do things. So for example, like in New York City, Chinatown, like used to work a lot with a group called Chinese Staff and Workers Association, which is a group that represents low-wage delivery workers and home care workers in the Chinese community. And I'm Korean and I don't speak Chinese, but I was fully integrated into that space. And I had that kind of experience in a number of sort of working class groups that used Asian Americanness when it was convenient as a sort of like rallying point or an organizing tool. And I think I've seen that in like even my parents' lives and the lives of other sort of working class immigrants who, um, yes, of course, they identify as like Korean first and they speak Korean and that's kind of the group they're in. But then I see my mom, you know, being in spaces where there are other kinds of Asian people like at her workplace and then she becomes Asian. And so I think there's this sort of like grab bag quality to some of these like synthetic categories. And for me, I would say that like Asian Americanness has been useful in that regard. And so I think we have to take that very seriously about when can that be useful? When can that actually be politically motivating for people? I would say, Tammy, like, you know, the example that you gave, right, the Chinese, uh, was it the Laundry Workers Association or the Chinese Staffing uh, Workers Association? Right, workers in, right it, is, it is still like the Chinese Workers Staffing mm-hmm. Association, yeah. right? It's not the Asian American. And, sure, and that, in that's name, beca- but I'm just saying like effectively or in, in the experience there, like it has been an Asian American space. Um, and there's a couple other organizations like that in Chinatown. You know, they're, they're small examples. I'm not, but I think that it speaks to something like they are, if you look at them nationally, like a part of something you could call Asian-American working-class politics. Um, I I think it's really important that we get to talking about class, because that plays such a giant part in this, and to talking about the Hart-Seller Act, which is actually at the center of this book and at your thinking about how these communities function. What was the Hart-Seller Act, and how do you see it having an impact? Because it clearly did. Um, All right. Quick version is the Heart Seller Act was uh, signed in 1965 by Lyndon Johnson, and it removed a lot of the restrictions that had been put in on immigration from not just Asia, although Asia was one of the big focuses, but also uh, Southern and Eastern Europe. And, you know, the, the funny thing about this law is that they sort of say, uh, Lyndon Johnson gives this like speech right when it passes, and he's basically like, listen, nothing's going to happen. You know, this is not a big change. Nobody's actually going to come, you know, <laughs> like um, like for all of you who are worried about like hordes of people coming to the United States, like, you know, don't worry about it. We're just kind of doing this because it's the right thing to do and it looks good. Um, and then, of course, he's wrong, you know, like millions and millions of people come to the United States after that. Many of them come through chain migration where like somebody comes over and then they bring their family over in a few years after that. And that radically changed the way that the United States looked. Right, because you have previously, you have the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 that barred Chinese Americans from receiving citizenship. And then you have Japanese people enduring mass violence in California, being mass expelled from public schools. And that eventually leads to the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act of 1924, which argues that you have to have the possibility of citizenship in order to be an immigrant, ergo, Asians cannot emigrate to the United States. Right. So all the like there's 
almost a hundred years of of Asian exclusion in the United States and immigration. Nineteen sixty five finally uh, lifts that, and part of the logic, if you actually read some of the the documents at the time, was basically just like we're so racist against them. Why would they come? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like which you know, I don't know. Maybe it's a good question to ask. You know, or or at least was like the the prevailing sentiment, just being like, yeah, there's not many of us, and we did just intern a bunch of them. You know. <laughs> So maybe they won't come, but, you know. And like waging wars in Asia at the same time. (laughs) Right, right, right. Like, you know, we're kind of bombing a lot of them. But like, um, you know, they did come. And um, that that is like sort of the basis of of the Americas that we see today. It's that one law. And, um, you know, people move to different places, right? My aunts, when they came, and my grandmother and my grandfather, when they moved to United States all moved to Los Angeles. They all settled down in Koreatown. They started working in kitchens. You know, one of them was a nurse. She was sort of the big provider for everybody. But um, that's how enclaves get started. And so with part of the interest in my in writing this book was just like, okay, well, how, how does this work? You know, like, why did why is there a Koreatown, right? Why are there so many uh, Chinese people in Flushing right now? You know, like, why are there so many people in all these different places? And, you know, like, what what is their sort of actual purchase in this country? Like, how deep do those roots go? So, yeah, that, that, that's sort of, yeah, that is like, I, I don't know, I'd say that like 60, 70% of the book is just like sort of trying to answer that question. So I, I'm curious, Tammy, how do you think different waves of immigration from very different Asian countries change the idea of a shared Asian-American experience? Yeah, I would say that most of it's class differentiated. I mean, I think we can make certain geographical like generalizations. Like we can talk about Southeast Asia in the 1960s and 70s because of the war that we were fighting there. We can talk about East Asia and the East Asian tigers in particular, and maybe China a little bit separately. We can talk about South Asians, you know, and some of the ways that in which they came over. But when you look at their existence here, it's completely class differentiated because you can have, you know, I'll just use completely vulgar stereotypes at this point, but you could have like, you know, Indian and Pakistani, you know, engineers who are working at Microsoft, which is near where I grew up. But in Queens and Jackson Heights, you can have like Nepali and Tibetan and Indian workers who are basically in garment shops or, you know, working as domestic workers, right? Um, And it's the same thing in all of the communities that we might group under Asian America. I mean, I think uh, what's layered on top of that is, the ways in which they come. So are you coming as a refugee or you come in and you become a nice ILE or are you coming on a diversity visa or a skilled worker visa? And then we have to acknowledge that there are huge numbers of undocumented Asians in the U.S. And that heart seller in some ways, like especially if you look at Latin and American and Mexican migration, like was the cause of a lot of the waves of undocumented migration we're seeing because we closed the borders so tightly after that. Um, and so in the Asian community as well, like, you know, in New York City, where I'm sitting right now, I mean, there are definitely like big groups of undocumented worker communities where they're basically working like sub minimum wage jobs. So that all introduces like incredible complexity um, into the situation. And I would say that um, I think that's a little bit what Jay's identifying in the book is, you know, once again, if we are two or three generations out from Hartzeller, which is when most of the Asian migration started happening then we're seeing like class stratification in these communities that makes it so that these terms become less meaningful. Jay, you talk a lot about your relationship with the writer Noel Ignatiev, who wrote a lot about how the Irish became white and the idea of white privilege as being not like 
I don't know, you can go to stores and people don't follow you, but about being a deceptive tactic wielded by bosses because it's all about like, you know, the idea that you use whiteness to get white workers on board with capitalism instead of standing athwart capitalism with their black brothers. And I'm interested to hear more of your thoughts on kind of that assimilation concept and how that works, especially because it does seem that like we constantly use references to the civil rights movement. This white black binary seems to guide so much of how we think about race, even though we know that it's not true. Like it's not accurate. It's not true. Every four years, people are stunned that Latinos vote for Republicans. And it just is like, (laughs) but it's like, they're allowed. Like, you know, it's a, that's, they're permitted to do so. But it seems so like our racial language seems pretty barren. Yeah. I I mean, Noel's book was about like how the Irish in the 19th century and the early 20th century came to the United States and were in direct labor competition with black workers and white workers, right? And there is a choice that one makes, right? Where you say, okay, which one? And, you know, in the beginning, they lived in black neighborhoods, right? Like they were, at the beginning, they were, they were not considered white. And so this group, you know, through a certain amount of violence, through a certain amount of like uh, decisions, through organizing coalitions, right? There is a process through which people become white because they are in competition and, and they can either be on top or they can be on bottom, right? And so like in that way, the binary does work because it was a 19th century, right? And so, right, there's not that many groups here in the United States and, and there aren't even that many people. So like, it's very different, but, you know, post-1965, it's different. You know, I, I had a lot of conversations with Noel before he passed about, uh, about this, like, and, you know, they spanned, like, we were out of touch for a while, but they started when I was 18 years old, you know, and uh, he was my professor and they ended, you know, like right before he passed uh, when I was 40 years old, right? And the question that he always asked me that I, like, never really wanted to answer at first because it was sort of, like, I didn't want to think about it. It was just like, well, what about you guys? (laughs) (laughs) And I would want to say, it's like, look at my face, you know? Like, do you think this is going to work out for me? You know, like, think about what America is like, right? Like, I can't, I'm not like a guy who just, you know, I'm not someone with just red hair who otherwise might look white, right? Like, um, like, this is, this might be a different thing. And I think that that struggle, like that idea about that has actually occupied the past, you know, my entire career, you know, like that, that is the question that haunts me, you know, like, and, and I think that this book is my attempt to sort of process that. But I also think that like, you know, like it is complicated in many ways, right? Like, I think that there is a way that you can think about uh, whiteness as an economic construct, right? In the way that he does. And I think in that sense, like, sure, like, I think that there will be, you know, upward mobility because that's how capitalism operates and, you know, like people are not going to give up certain things are going to keep trying to get into these schools are going to keep trying to throw themselves on the gears of upward mobility. Right. And it's hard to blame people for that because we live in a precarious country and uh, these are precarious times. But on the other hand, there's like this personal aspect of it. Right. And the personal aspect of it, like, I just don't know, you know, like um, I certainly don't feel white. You know, I don't think I've ever felt white a day in my life. You know, like, I don't know many Asian people who do feel white. I know maybe a couple, but like, <laughs> I don't know. I think both are worth having conversations about, you know, and I don't mean to like sort of toss this off into like, we should have discussions, <laughs> but. Finally. Yeah. But <laughs> it's time to have the conversation at another time. <laughs> yeah. The answer to the first one, right, like is a little more complicated because for the most part, Asian Americans, they're not in direct 
labor competition with white and black people, right? Like they are sort of off to the side in a way, right? And in that way, they're sort of left alone. And that, that creates a different type of politics when you're not like in, you know, when you're not all fighting with each other, right? Like when you're just sort of like, well, I got a store over here, you know, <laughs> and please come into my store if you'd like to, you know, but like, um, but you know, like we're not fighting for the same job, right? We might be fighting for the same business in the same community, but we're not like in, we're not working together. So I think that that's a little different, but um, I don't know. Uh, I think about the second question I think about a lot in context of my daughter, who is uh, mixed race and who is uh, four and a half years old right now. And I do think about that quite a bit because I think about like the my own childhood and what it was like to be like so distinctly raced in such a, you know, in areas that were had almost no Asian people in it and like what it did to me and um, how it sort of formed me. And I've had this realization that she will not have that life, you know, like she won't have the same sort of doubts and neuroses that I do. Tammy, because I know that this is something you may have thought about too. What role do you think whiteness plays, especially for, as Jay points out, for a lot of, I'm going to use the term Asian American, even I know we're just having a conversation about how the term (laughs) is useless, for a lot of Asian American folks, at no point has becoming white or appearing white ever been really part of the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I was just moderating a panel a few weeks ago on immigration in which basically one of the scholars said that the end trajectory for immigrant groups is whiteness. And I sat on the panel, actually, I really don't think I was moderating, but I interjected to say, no, I really don't think that's true. I don't feel white and I don't think I'm destined for whiteness. Um, And I'm not really sure where, you know, you got that. But yeah, I mean, I think he was trying to figure out, you know, playing on some of Noel's work and this kind of general understanding people have of like, if you get comfortable in this country, if you have a modicum of economic security in this country, are you white? You know, and I think like that right now, like in Jay's book and other places where, um, I mean, I might even throw like Kathy Park Hong's minor feelings into this because I think she makes some of these points as well. Like if you look just at the census numbers about like how different Asian American groups are doing, like, yes, there is a very big gap between rich and poor, which is always talked about, but There's also, like, for people Jay and my generation, like, generally people are ascendant economically, and that propels them into, like, majority white spaces in a lot of places. And so I think we're constantly struggling with that of, okay, we see that our general environs are literally white, like, physically white by the physiognomy of the people around us. And yet when people call us white adjacent or that we are becoming white somehow by being in those spaces, like, there is a resentment. And I think... Like Jay's book and Kathy's book is kind of trying to figure that out of like, then how are we supposed to feel about that? Because I don't like that. It sounds like an accusation. Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds like an insult. Yeah, like the acting white canard or something. So in all of these different ways, basically, the insult is like your attachment to whiteness. That's what you're kind of measured against. Right. I'm interested to ask both of you whether you think that a shared experience is necessary for an identity group such as it exists. I think a lot about how for African-Americans, you have a conceit of a shared experience of linkages to slavery or prejudice or something, Um, kind of that, you know, you're brought together with a lot of people you would normally not talk to because of the vice of oppression. And you see that with any number of communities, with LGBT folks, where it's like, well, you know, we all hate each other, but they hate us more. So we all have to work together and go to court a lot for 30 goddamn years. 
to get basic stuff. But I'm interested if that shared experience is necessary to be thought of or to think of yourself as part of a group. That's a great question. Um, I don't think it has to be, right? And I think that obviously people are always going to dislike each other on an interpersonal level, right? But there are certain things that that those groups do share that that Asian Americans don't necessarily always share. Like, for example, language, right? Like, you know, if, if you don't speak English, right, then how do you sort of have that type of communication? The other thing is, think is that, like, these communities really do sort of grow up in most places, they do sort of exist in, in isolation with one another. Now, there are obviously exceptions to that, right? Like, so Jackson Heights, Queens, it's like, you know, like, that's why they made the documentary about it. That's why everyone loves it, right? It's because it's like literally every person from every, you know, you have Colombians, you have like Tibetans, you have Nepalese, you have Indian Americans, you have Chinese people, you have Korean people, they're all there, right? Those places are somewhat rare. Like, generally, immigrant enclaves are actually enclaves. And so... um I think that it is difficult to convince people who don't think of themselves as a certain type of people that they are a people, right? And I think that's hard. Like, I think that the, the gay community understands that they're gay, right? I think the Black community understands that they're Black. I think the main problem with Asian American organizing is that many, 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 many Asian Americans don't know that they're Asian American, you know, or they don't think of themselves as such. And I think that does add, like, a, a, a greater challenge to it. And I, I think that, you know, it is... It, it is a nice dream to think about, you know, could we all band together? Like, that's what the activists in the 60s were doing, right? They Like, basically, their motto was like, well, everyone who doesn't fit in one of those groups, just come over here, you know? <laughs> it was like they're picking a dodgeball team or something like that, you know? Like, every, we'll take everyone, we'll take everyone. I think that's just like, I, I think that's a beautiful impulse, you know? Like, I, I think it's like a beautiful thing to have done back then. But those people are all people who had lived in the United States for three or four generations, mostly. You know, they all spoke English, right? Like, they all had a common language. And they all had a similar experiences of being, like, sort of racialized and being, like, you know, anomalies. Like, they all had similar experiences that way. And, and I think in Asian America, we're just not there yet, you know? Like, Tammy and I are basically, what, we're, like, the first generation or second generation of post-heart seller kids, you know? You know, it's hard to find, like, an identity outside of that. Yeah, I think we don't need to share that much in order to use the category when we want to. Like, I just think it's part of coalitional politics that you figure out what your interests are. And it's a strange bedfellow situation in all of these campaigns. I mean, I think even in the queer community, we can see that, you know, a lot of like LGBT groups were riven by debates over gay marriage, gays in the military, over trans rights. Like that's continuing about like, are these the right strategies? Who are we? So I think in all of these places, we're making choices about like, yeah, generally I'm Korean American and I do X, Y, and Z. But when I'm going to an immigrant rights march and there's a call for like Asian Americans to do such and such, like, sure, I'll opt into that for that moment. But that may not be something that I'm hanging on to. I just, I think that's kind of how it's always worked. I think that that gets to Jay thinking about class being a more central unifying experience. And in the pieces that you write about Koreatown and thinking about the riots after Rodney King, you talk a lot about how modern Asian identity, such as it exists, is complicated by class. And so you talk about how the upwardly mobile are kind of hovering around the black-white binary while poor folks are ignored. And then you have first-generation people who are thinking of themselves not as Korean-Americans or as people of color, but as like Korean people in America just trying to like run their stores and do their shit. And I'm curious as to why you think that class is a more central experience. Well, I think that we need to think about 
the population through class to have it be an accurate representation of who the people are, right? That we have to look at the ways in which people enter the economy, how they tend to do, you know, like who who does sort of end up at these places where we sort of see 30% Asian people and then, you know, people get, you know, they're like, wow, there are a lot of Asian people here, you know, like these sort of elite spaces. Like how do you, who are the people who tend to get there? Who are the people who don't tend to get there? And then even within groups, right, there are people who tend to get there, there are people who don't tend to get there. And that I've never found race to be a particularly, or even ethnicity in a lot of ways, right, to be a particularly interesting way to look at that, because I think that it has so many elisions in it, and it has to do so much grouping in it. But like, generally, you know the difference, right? Like, you know, one of the things that I think is very true is that like, if you go to Sunset Park in Brooklyn, New York, right, just like a very poor Chinese American immigrant community, right? And you walk around and, and you say, these people are all white adjacent, you know? Like, because Chinese Americans are white adjacent because they're all rich. Like, it, like, it's absurd, right? Like, you would be struck by the absurdity of what you're saying. No one around there is white adjacent, right? Like, and so, like, I think it is kind of complicated in that way because I think that, like, if you want to actually try and figure out what's happening in Asian America, you do, you have to almost, like, abandon the idea of Asian American itself. Now, the contradiction in that, of course, is that, like, if I was walking around in Sunset Park, you know, and, and, and like, you know, random person was walking by, you know, they would be like, oh, yeah, he's like them, you know? <laughs> you know? And then I would turn them and be like, actually, you know, I don't know if you know, but I'm a journalist for the New York Times, you know, like, um, and so, like, it, it plays both ways, right? And, and that's, it, it, it's just very, and I don't know, I find that so, comp- I, I find that so fascinating because like, you know, in, in some ways it's the individual sort of being raced, right? Like being like sort of racialized or being identified as a race, like that's one thing. But the other thing is that if you're talking about communities, if you're talking about about upward mobility, then, then I, I don't think, I think that you almost have to abandon that. You have to almost be like, okay, for this moment, that that's, that's not so important. I'm curious, what do you think, Tammy? Do you think we lose something if we center class? And what do we lose if we do? I agree with Jay that it makes the most sense to center class concerns because I think that's what motivates people. That's what their lives are mostly like. That's the texture of their lives. However, within that, we can see like even if we just look at like different labor markets, like for instance, there's all these interesting sociological studies about Chinese, Latina overlaps in the garment industry in New York and in other places where they used to have vibrant garment trades. And you saw that there was like preferential hiring within those racial groups because Chinese women want to bring their family and friends in, same with the Latina women, and there was competition and the bosses would try to pit those groups against each other. So what do we learn from that? I mean, I guess we learn that, you know, workers are obviously identifying as workers and I think if the situation allowed for it, they could band together to try to improve their conditions in that space. And yet they still retain these like preferences and like affinities and relationships that are race bound. Um, So I think like when we do a class analysis, basically these things are always kind of integrated into each other. But I, I guess I believe in a politics where you can try to unpack that for people and for people to educate themselves around the fact that generally the racial part of it will be like a dividing force as opposed to one that unifies them for better ends. You, you got to meet people where they are kind of, you know, like I agree, like it would be great if we could go into these places. And, you know, the problem, one of the problems right now is that like, unlike when Noel Ignatiev is working in the factories, not everyone works in the factories at the same factory, sure. you know, yeah. but like, it would be great to go and say like, listen, you know, like, 
like, let's throw down these racial divisions. Let's rise up together, you know? Like, just because you get to use a forklift and they don't, you know, that doesn't, like, is that what you're going to base your, like, all your system of oppression and uh, on? And, like, let's drop all this and let's not think about it so, so that way. And then everyone's going to look at you and just be like, what are you talking, you know, what are you talking about? Well, no. You know, okay. You're like, you're, no, 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 no. But the, I don't agree. No, I, I think that that is, I think <laughs> that is an ideal thing that we can do, right? But you have to meet people, like people do think about themselves in terms of ethnicity, you know, they do think about themselves in terms of race, right? And like to sort of say, don't do that anymore. And I'm going to wait until you get over this. And then we can start the, you know, then we can start the revolution. I don't know. I think that we'll be waiting a long time. I just think that we need to meet people where they are. I don't think anyone's saying that, but I do. I I want to say that like that's what workers do, and that's what organizers of workers do every day. They get themselves and one another to the point of seeing that. That doesn't mean they say they're going to throw down and throw away their affinities and their identities. As I mean, as I was saying, I mean, but that was all my they point. have to lose are their chains. Their chains. I know. I know. Right. Yeah. Right. And then right. they sing, you know, but no, but I mean, I think it is difficult. And yet this is, this is like basically what we've always been doing as humans is trying to figure that out. Um, so I think like, yeah, you meet people where they are. Also people can, can figure that out that when they see that, yeah, they're competing against a coworker of a different race, but also who is the actual opposition here. It's the boss that's trying to deprive them of wages. Hey, it's me, Jane, again. The past few weeks, there's been a ton of news about Facebook or Meta and the company's effect on society and politics. You probably know what I think about Section 230 and Facebook, but I want to know what you think we should do. Do we need more regulations for the company? Should we break it up? Do you even think Facebook is a problem? Leave me a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. We might play an excerpt on a future episode. Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love spelling bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Tammy, what is the goal in having a term like Asian American? Is it primarily political or cultural? What is the intention of that idea? Yeah, that's a hard question. I think I think it's political. I think it's um I think it is based on this kind of, as I was describing it, like a kind of grab bag coalitional thing. And then I think at some points it becomes very, very real because Although it seems to be breaking up a little bit right now, as we see, like, with the Trump statistics, there was a point, or it has been assumed, and it generally was true, that a lot of immigrant groups would want to rally around, like, for instance, immigration policy. 
Um, And in that case, like Asian America in some sense was meaningful. I think also Asian America can be meaningful culturally in the sense of certain kinds of cultural production, like a group that I've worked with a long time in New York is called the Asian American Writers Workshop. And they are always playing with like, what does it mean to produce like an Asian American literature? And I think that's that's also like a deeply contested category. But at the same time, like there are certain things we can identify as like unifying these books, you know, so I would say that it's provisional and like very flawed, but I use it all the time. There's a moment in the chapter eight about Bruce Springsteen where you talk about the idea of people of color as being a multicultural coalition of upwardly mobile and overeducated people. I, I was thinking about that because there's a moment in the book where you you have like a black friend named Dwayne. But if you, you say something like if if someone had said that, like, oh, well, you're both people of color, you're like, what? That wouldn't make any sense. And I think about that, like growing up, like, you know, if you would have told me that you and your sister and like the one Thai girl in your class, well, you're basically, you're all this, you're all tied together by, and I'd been like, no, she has long hair and my hair goes up. So very <laughs> different. Yeah, I think that's a central idea of the book is that one story about my friend Dwayne when I was in fifth grade. I don't want to do this, but, you know, like we were in a gifted program together. I don't want to be like, I was a gifted kid. But, you know, there was 18 kids and we were sort of separated. We basically took a short bus to a different school. And, you know, like there was Dwayne and Deirdre and Abana. They were the three black kids in our class. And, um, you know, Dwayne and I are friends and Dwayne was from uh, Hargraves, which at the time was like the sort of poor, traditionally black neighborhood in Chapel Hill. And the other two kids were like the children of wealthier people, right? Right. And then Deirdre's father was like a very famous doctor in the area. Like, you know, like when you have local news and like there's like we're bringing on the on the doctor, the TV doctor. Like he was he was that, you know, there's no one more powerful in like 1980s, 1990s America (laughs) than like the doctor who shows up on local news. He really was. Um, and so it was so interesting, you know, I've actually talked to Deirdre, like some, you know, in writing the book and, and recently too. And, you know, like I just, you know, there's this scene in the book where like Dwayne sort of dropped out of the program after fifth grade. And then in around seventh grade, Hargraves was where they had the little league field, you know, and like it was every single racist trope. And um, I hadn't seen Dwayne in a few years. And, you know, like he was lived in the neighborhood. He came up to me and he said, hello, you know, because he saw me through the fence. And, you know, there's this moment of betrayal where I was just like, we're not really, we're not the same. You know, we're both minorities. But I felt very deeply at the time, you know, like I am not like you. This is when I was like, I don't know, like 12 years old. Right. And that, you know, I, I try and be as honest as possible in the book about this. And that, you know, I just think about it. It's just like if someone had come up to me at that moment where I'm like having this moment where like I I am trying to figure out if I am going to like still identify with my friend, you know, or if the years of sort of him being like sort of cast in this way because of where he lives, right, is going to make it impossible for us to be friends anymore. That if someone would be like, well, you're both people of color, you know, I would just be like, what is that term? You know? And yet it was not true of Deirdre Nabana, you know? And so I think that that's like a way in which like, not just class, but, you know, the way in which like race works differently, right? Uh, With different people within the same classroom. And I do think it complicates this idea of people of color, right? I think that, I think that Deirdre and I could be people of color together, you know? I don't think Dwayne and I can be people of color together. (laughs) And, and, and like, you know, what, what does that mean about the term then, you know? And, 
like, I think that you can have very forceful rebuttals to what I'm saying right now and just be like, well, that's because you are self-hating or you can say that's because you were racist at 12. And I would say, yes, I was, you know, and guess what? Every single other kid on that team was thinking the same exact thing. All the kids that went to, we were all friends with Dwayne, you know, and then, you know, like Dwayne's life ended up very differently than me and me, Avina and Deirdre's, right? Uh, Deirdre and Avina are are lawyers now. Um, Like Dwayne ended up having this horrible incident. He's been in the, in the criminal justice system ever since. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I've thought about that, that moment my whole life. You know, uh, I don't know. I'm like getting upset thinking about it now, but it's just like, well, what is, like, what, what does race mean in, in, in those conditions, right? What do these categories mean in those conditions? So much of the book is a meditation on that, right? I think that we have to interrogate those categories very deeply, you know, and think about them in terms of, of everything. What do you think is the goal in having a term like Asian American? I think people want to feel like they have a purchase in this country, that they're not just like people who don't have a group, you know? I think people want to feel like there is a political movement that they can insert themselves into, that that if they go to these clubs, if they go to these groups when they're in college, that'll lead to like a, a type of consciousness raising and a type of being okay with yourself, you know? And I think for a lot of people that is true. And I think those are the stewards of Asian America, the people who that works for, right? Like, I mean, Tammy said that, like, when she was in college, she did a lot of that stuff and it was meaningful to her. I think that that, I think that's why people want to be invested in it. It's sincere and it's like a totally sympathetic impulse, right? And yet I, I think that it's like an impulse that, that applies to, to a very small group of Asian Americans and that, uh, you know, the vast majority don't really think about that at all now. If they had had that experience now, would they would the would they feel bad? Would they have more support? Would they have more lines of solidarity with people? I think so, you know. But it just hasn't happened yet. And we just have to be honest that it, that it hasn't happened yet. Like there's no Asian America right now. Tammy, do you think that there is an Asian America? <laughs> I I don't know if there's an Asian America to the extent that everyone who fits under this demographic label is sitting and thinking, "I am Asian American today." And this is who I am. <laughs> However, do I think that it is a category that can be mobilized? Yeah. And I think it is all the time. And um, I think Jay is probably right that a lot of this kind of like, especially immigrant-based like self-identification comes up in college. Like you see that with Black immigrants. You see that with like Latino immigrants. You see that with Asian immigrants. But I don't think that's the only place it happens. I also don't think that um, if that kind of identification happens as a suggestion in um, organizing spaces, that that means it's not somehow like organic or real. Like I think it's as real as any of these sort of labels that we use. Well, obviously I could go for a really long time having this conversation because it's interesting. Thank you both so much. This has been awesome. I really appreciate your time. No, Tammy, thanks for coming on. Jay Caspian Kang's new book is The Loneliest Americans. He also writes a newsletter for Time's Opinion. E. Tammy Kim hosts the podcast Time to Say Goodbye with Jay and Andy Liu. And for another perspective on similar issues, listen to the episode of Sway with writer and poet Kathy Park Hong. She talks about why she's seeking power, not assimilation. It's called An Asian American Poet on Refusing to Take Up Apologetic Space. We'll have a link on our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Bishaka Durba. Edited by Sarah Geis. 
with original music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Andrea Lopez Cruzado. And audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Special thanks this week to Kristen Lin and Matt Kwong. <laughs>